Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. Today, let's start off with an arrest in a 48-year-old cold case out of Pennsylvania. And I need to give a shout out to great reporting by Jen Baxter at Medium on the background of this case because it's 48 years old. So let's begin. Eight-year-old Gretchen Harrington had two older sisters, and her parents, Harold and Ina, had just had a fourth child. Despite being, you know, unseated as the baby of the family, Gretchen was thrilled with getting a baby sister to love. Gretchen's dad, Harold, was the reverend of the Reformed Presbyterian Covenant Church in Marple Township, Pennsylvania. And Gretchen's mom, well, she stayed at home caring for the now four children, and it was a tight-knit family. They were being raised with what some might call strict boundaries, like the children weren't allowed to watch TV on Sundays, and Sundays were tightly observed as the Sabbath day, so there was no playing outside, and most of the day was filled with attending and worshiping at church. All right, just eight days after her baby sister was born, Gretchen began walking on a summer Friday morning in 1975 to the Trinity Chapel Christian Reformed Church. 
Now, Gretchen was going to attend Bible camp for the morning, and the church where Bible camp was being held was just a few blocks from her home. All right, the walk would take Gretchen up a steep hill on Lawrence Road, where she would then cross at the crosswalk and continue down the heavily traveled four-lane road to the church. Now, on the way, she would normally pass a supermarket and a housing development, and at some point in the 10-minute walk, Gretchen vanished. Now, she had left her house with plenty of time to arrive at the church by 9.30, and here's how the Bible camp was going to be run for the day. The children would arrive at the Trinity Church, they would do some activities, and then they would be caravaned to the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Okay, remember, that's the one where Gretchen's dad was the reverend. And at 11 o'clock, when Gretchen didn't arrive back at her dad's church, her parents learned that she had never even made it to the first segment of the Bible camp at Trinity Chapel. Now, I've seen two different accounts of how the police found out that Gretchen was missing. Some say her parents reported her missing to the Marple Township Police, and some say it was David Zanstra, the pastor of the Trinity Church, who reported her missing after Gretchen's dad and him spoke. And either way, police responded quickly, and within a few hours, more than 300 volunteers were canvassing the neighborhood. And this initial search on Friday afternoon and evening, well, it turned up nothing. And then on Saturday, even more concerned community members and friends showed up to continue combing the thick Pennsylvania underbrush that was surrounding the housing development and the areas behind the grocery store. Now, with the help of more than 400 volunteers, investigators say they managed to cover nearly five square miles between those two days. But to the Harrington's dismay, there was still no sign of Gretchen or even any clues about her disappearance. Now, while searchers were scrubbing through the rough terrain, police had used tracking dogs to follow Gretchen's scent. And the dogs, they successfully tracked Gretchen halfway up that steep hill, But her trail abruptly ended, leading police to believe she got in a vehicle because there were no signs of a struggle where the scent ended. And it was truly a community effort in the search for Gretchen. Police had set up a 24-hour hotline, and in just the first few days, more than 200 tips were received by law enforcement. A truck driver who was on Lawrence Road that day, he was certain he saw a girl matching Gretchen's description getting in a green pickup that was missing a tailgate. And then a woman said she saw a man leading a child towards a small white car. Then another potential eyewitness said she saw a white teen boy and a child running toward a white four-door car. Now, these were just some of the leads that were called in, but they all led nowhere. And after two months police were no closer to finding Gretchen. Now, in what some might think is an act of desperation, and others might think investigators should try absolutely everything, the police sought out famed psychic Judith Richardson Hames, who had helped investigators in the Northeast solve almost 100 other cases. So, I mean, why not? Well, Judith told Insider that she remembers during the discussion with law enforcement that she blurted out to investigators that Gretchen was dead. But after that, she was unable to clearly see where the child was located. Then, two months after her disappearance, a sailor from the Philadelphia Naval Yard 
stumbled across human remains while jogging in the Ridley Creek State Park. And investigators immediately presumed the remains to be Gretchen's because the clothing that was neatly folded next to the remains, well, it matched Gretchen's reported clothes she was wearing the day of her disappearance. And her underwear was also draped over a nearby tree branch. Now, the medical examiner later verified the remains to be Gretchen's by using dental records. And the autopsy also determined that Gretchen died of blunt force trauma to the head that had fractured her skull. The ME couldn't say if Gretchen had been sexually assaulted since her remains were too decomposed. But the location of the body was seven miles from her home, which checked out with investigators' theories that she had been placed in the vehicle halfway up that steep hill on Lawrence Road. Now for the next 48 years, investigators came up empty. Some detectives believed that a convicted sex offender who was eventually imprisoned on other charges, well, they thought he was responsible for Gretchen's murder, but others weren't convinced and they continued to dig for answers. Well, Some of those answers were revealed last week when authorities arrested 83-year-old David Zanstra for Gretchen's murder. Yeah, you remember that name? He was the pastor of the Trinity Church and the one who potentially called in the disappearance of Gretchen. Now, Zanstra wasn't a stranger to Gretchen. He had a daughter that was Gretchen's age, and the two girls, they often played together. And if you're frustrated thinking, why didn't they see this guy 48 years ago? Well, he wasn't overlooked by law enforcement back then. He had initially been interviewed in 1975, but he denied seeing Gretchen at all on the day of her disappearance. But back then, despite saying he hadn't seen her, he did give a description of what she looked like and specifically the shorts that she was wearing. And the criminal complaint noted that the shorts were handmade by Gretchen's mother and not just basic shorts that someone would buy at a store. So it would be difficult for him to know exactly the details that he shared. Now, one witness had said they had seen Gretchen talking with a driver of a green station wagon. And Zanstra did have access to a green station wagon that he used to transport the children back and forth at Bible camp. But that lead, well, it dried up when investigators couldn't make any further connections. So, 48 years later, how did they circle back to Zanstra? Well, in January of this year, a woman came forward saying that Zanstra had groped her groin area when she was 10 years old and sleeping at the home with several other girls. Okay, this is super interesting. The date of the sexual groping is very specific because the girl... She wrote it down in her diary when the event happened. And that date was just seven days before Gretchen was murdered. And thank goodness law enforcement did their due diligence in following up with Zanstra. Because when they traveled to Marietta, Georgia, where Zanstra lives, and they asked him about the sexual assault decades ago, and also about Gretchen's murder, Zanstra confessed. And he told investigators, that he saw Gretchen walking alone on that fateful morning. He was driving the green station wagon when he pulled over and asked her if she needed a ride. He also told investigators that he drove to the wooded area and asked her to remove her clothing. When she refused, he said he struck her in the head with his closed fist. He then said he thought she was dead and he tried to cover the body and he left the area. Now, Pennsylvania State Police Lieutenant Jonathan Sunderland said the following. 
Justice does not have an expiration date. Whether a crime happened 50 years ago or five minutes ago, the residents of the Commonwealth can have confidence that law enforcement will not rest until justice is served. All right, a DNA sample has been collected and submitted to the DNA index system just so investigators can compare Zanstra's DNA to samples collected in Pennsylvania and other states because investigators are already linking him to a possible abduction of two boys in Broomall back in 1975, kind of near the date when Gretchen was murdered. And Zanstra, he also lived in Texas, California, and of course, Georgia, where he was arrested. So cases in those states will be specifically examined as well. Now, as far as this case, Delaware County DA Jack Stolsteimer said the following, we're going to bring him back to Delaware County We're going to try him, we're going to convict him, and he's going to die in jail. Now, Zanstra is expected to fight extradition to Pennsylvania. He's been charged with criminal homicide, first, second, and third degree murder, kidnapping of a minor, and possession of an instrument of crime. He was denied bail. All right, now let me bring you a missing persons case that we just might be able to help the family find this vibrant woman who was looking to expand her business and open a group home for those struggling with mental illness. All right, this story is out of Charlotte, North Carolina and the surrounding areas. And I'm going to tell you, it's confusing. It's a little bit infuriating and it's head shaking at best. Okay, here's the timeline. On July 16th of this year, -year 39-year-old business owner Alicia Watts was last seen by friends in Moore County. See, Alicia was with her boyfriend of one year, James Dunmore, and she was driving her black Mercedes SUV. Now, she would drive to Charlotte every other Friday to visit James since the two didn't live in the same city. It was kind of the schedule they had developed to continue their relationship. And on this specific weekend, Alicia, James, and her cousin were planning on attending a comedy show at Bojangles Coliseum. But on the night of the show, Alicia and her boyfriend didn't show up for the event. And her cousin, Gwendolyn Utley, well, she said this was very unusual for Alicia. And on the next day, when Gwendolyn was out and about, she saw that the SUV was in the same location, unmoved apparently, at James' home. Then... Just two days later, still without any contact with family or friends from Alicia, her black Mercedes is found in the parking lot of the Anson County DMV office in Polkton. All right, crazy, right? This parking lot is used by law enforcement to travel to the area where they fuel their cars. And the SUV had been spotted several hours earlier where law enforcement kind of noted that a man was behind the wheel, seemingly napping, sleeping, I don't know. But then after several hours, law enforcement decided they better approach the vehicle. And that's when they found Alicia's boyfriend, James, unresponsive. And James was taken to the local hospital. Okay, it isn't until the next day that law enforcement considers Alicia a missing person, despite her cousin reporting her circumstances days earlier, and also despite the mysterious situation in which her car was found. And it just keeps getting weirder. Her purse is found in the SUV, and her phone is found at her boyfriend's house, all of this according to family. But there is no sign of Alicia, and it's at this point that law enforcement seems to go quiet. And the family of Alicia is frustrated. 
In a news conference last week led by the Racial Justice Network, Lauren Blue, a longtime friend of Alicia's, said family and friends have nothing but unanswered questions. She said law enforcement is not sharing any information about the evidence found in the car, any information about details about where she was possibly last seen, and they don't even know what the status of James is. WCNC Charlotte confirmed that James is not at any local hospitals. They also knocked at James' door and they left notes, but they've made no contact with James. And the only statement made by police was via their Twitter account, and this happened days after the disappearance. And this is how it reads. Detectives are following all leads and using all available resources to locate Ms. Watts. Detectives have been in communication with immediate family members of Ms. Watts and their designee to provide updates and request relevant information. We continue to ask for the public's assistance in this investigation. Anyone with information on Watts' whereabouts is asked to call 911 immediately or call Crime Stoppers at 704-334-1600. All tips are anonymous. And then there's nothing more from law enforcement. Look, I'll admit, that's all the right words they're saying, right? And I don't want to second-guess the police department at this point because despite being a very responsible adult, Alicia does have the right to leave and not communicate with anyone. But I also will say it's pretty shady that she's gone without her purse, her phone, or her car, and especially that her boyfriend is now AWOL as well. Now, Alicia has a thriving mental health business called Inspired Visions that she operates. And according to her sister, she is hardworking, independent, reliable, and resourceful. All qualities that don't seem to match somebody who just leave. Now, the sister also told ABC News that every day that passes by is one day less likely to bring her home safe. So let me repeat that number for Crime Stoppers. It's 704-334-1600. And you can find pictures of Alicia on Instagram at Rise in Crime. And now to a quick update, I promised you, charges have been filed against Carly Russell. Okay, if you don't know this story about the Alabama woman who faked her kidnapping by calling 911 and reporting that she was helping a wandering toddler on the side of a busy freeway, just pause right now and listen to the last episode of Rise and Crime, and you'll get yourself all the way updated because I'm only going to give the new update in this episode. All right, Hoover Police on Friday, well, they announced that they have charged Carly with falsely reporting an incident and false reporting to police. Both charges are misdemeanors. Carly was arrested and briefly jailed before being released on bond. Now, Hoover Police Chief Nick Durzis did say he was frustrated with only being able to charge Carly with misdemeanors, but he said the law did not allow for enhanced charges. Now, her case has been turned over to the Alabama Attorney General, Steve Marshall, who said that this was not a victimless crime and that there were significant hours spent and resources were expended as a result of the investigation into the fabricated story. Marshall said in a press conference that he intends to fully prosecute for the two misdemeanors. And now to this case out of Wisconsin. 
And yes, we have had several cases out of Wisconsin lately. This actually led one listener to send me a message that said, is Wisconsin the new Florida? And my response to that is, nah, they are just taking their turn in this crazy world of true crime. All right. In November of 2022, Quiana Mann was doing laundry in her Milwaukee home when her 10-year-old son, who I'm going to call B because his name has not been released. So her 10-year-old son, called B, approached his mom with a gun that he had taken from a lockbox that he had accessed with a key. Now, Upon seeing the gun, Quiana reportedly said, why do you have that? Put that down. B then assumed a shooting stance and pointed the gun at his mother, and he shot her in the face, killing her. Now, the shooting at first was ruled an accident. Investigators had interviewed the boy, and he said he had been twirling the gun, and it went off. But he then changed his story to say he only meant to scare her, but that his mother had started walking towards him, and that is when the bullet hit her in the face instead of striking the wall, as he had intended. Police then interviewed B a second time, and he admitted that it wasn't accidental. He claimed that he was mad at his mother for waking him up early that day. He also then told investigators that he was angry because she refused to buy him the $500 Oculus VR headset. Now, the second interview, when he admitted to purposely shooting his mother, well, that interview happened because family members were concerned about his behavior. And I totally get it. I would have been concerned too, because after killing his mother, B went ahead and purchased the VR headset on his mother's Amazon account. He told his grandmother he was sorry for killing his mom, and then he asked if a package had arrived for him from Amazon. Now, it was after the second interview that police arrested B, and they charged him with first-degree intentional homicide. And state law in Wisconsin allows authorities to charge defendants as young as 10 years old as adults. And the state did determine that they wanted to charge B as an adult. But Judge Jane Carroll had to review the matter to determine if B could understand being charged as an adult. So two psychologists, they were brought in and they evaluated B. And those evaluations were reviewed by Judge Carroll. She had to decide a couple of things. If B could understand he was an adult in court, also that could he understand what a felony charge was, and could B also understand how serious the crime was that he committed? Well, Judge Carroll ultimately determined last week that B had not received a major mental diagnosis and that he also had the ability to comprehend and learn about what was happening around him. He will be charged as an adult. Since his arrest in early January, B's grandmother, Loretha Mann, said she hasn't talked to her grandson directly. She told WTMG, that's an NBC affiliate out of Wisconsin, while she was sobbing, that she hoped one day that she could bring herself to talk with him, but that he had taken something very precious from her. And Quiana's sister, Rhonda Reed, in the same interview, said that she had spoken to the boy since he was placed in custody, and that he claimed he doesn't remember the incident. And he changed the subject when she was talking to him to a conversation about his gaming devices. Now, Rhonda also said that B has a long history of mental health issues. He had already been receiving treatment for mood disorders. He also claimed to be 
hearing voices in his head, specifically two little girls' voices who would encourage him to do really bad things. And he referred to those two girls as sisters. Now, his grandmother told Daily Beast that Beast struggled in school because waking up was hard for him, mostly because the voices would keep him awake at night. B had also had some other disturbing incidents, like one time where he filled a balloon with flammable liquid and he set it on fire, which ended up burning a portion of his family's living room. Well, he blamed the sister's voices in his head for starting that fire. But then he changed that and said the sisters were no longer little girls, but were now an elderly woman and a grumpy man. And then another disturbing behavior that B would exhibit was that B would swing his puppy around by his tail. Now, immediately following the charges, the grandmother had said she didn't want B tried as an adult. She said Quiana would not want that for her son. And I couldn't find any follow-up interviews with either Rhonda or Loretha. So right now, it's unclear if they have changed their minds about the state's desire to try B as an adult. Quiana was an accomplished woman who was set to receive her master's degree in business at Concordia University before she was killed. Her mother eventually accepted that degree on behalf of her daughter in May. And Quiana had also provided multiple experiences for her children, including trips to Disneyland for Christmas in 2021 and a trip to New York City just six months before her death. And Loretha told the New York Post that despite Quiana's efforts to give B a happy life, he was never really satisfied unless he was getting something. Now, this case has several more phases to go through before hitting the trial portion, and I'll keep you updated as it proceeds. Well, that's your Monday edition of Rise and Crime. Check in with me on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And I'm so very grateful for you sharing this community with people. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.